Well, good morning to you brave few who I trust have four-wheel drive, yeah? And uh, to you joining us uh, out on Facebook and YouTube land, uh, this brings back uh, uh, unfond memories of last year as we uh, did about, uh, I don't know, eight to ten weeks of uh, live streaming only uh, during the initial phases of the lockdown. Um, we are delighted and encouraged that uh, so many of you are still taking the time and effort to uh, to log in and to uh, participate as much as circumstances allow you to um, over the internet. So today we're going to have uh, um, uh, s some improvised changes. Obviously, Daniel and uh, John Lafferty are not here today to lead us in worship, and so I will be uh, <coughs> doing my best to uh, facilitate and usher us into worship a cappella. Um, I've done my best to try to get the lyrics on the on the PowerPoint, so... First, we're going to sing the doxology. Um, first, th these first two songs, very simple but very lovely songs that I think uh, reflect uh, a heart of true and genuine worship. Let's sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And I'm sure many of you remember this from your childhood. I know it's a simple song, but... It's a lovely song if sung in genuine worship and adoration to the Lord. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. Oh, my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my King, in what you hear. Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Let's do that one more time. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, O oh, my soul, rejoice, take joy, my King, in what you hear, let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Now join with me 
as we continue in our scripture reading through Deuteronomy. We're skipping a few chapters. Uh, It was my goal um, to give you a good overview and a gist of of the Pentateuch. And so there's several chapters that contain what are called sundry laws and civil laws. Uh, And many of these really uh, would necessitate a comment or two as we go through them. And so I would encourage you to read them on your own and and write down any questions you have. and, um, And we can come back to those later. But join with me in Deuteronomy chapter 27. Verses 1 to 8. Deuteronomy 27, 1 to 8. Then Moses and the elders of Israel charged the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I give you today. So it shall be on the day when you cross the Jordan to the land, which the Lord your God gives you, that you shall set up for yourself large stones and coat them with lime. And write on them all the words of this law when you cross over, so that you may enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. It shall be when you cross the Jordan, you shall set up on Mount Ebal these stones, as I am commanding you today, and you shall coat them with lime. Moreover, you shall build there an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not wield an iron tool on them. You shall build the altar of the Lord your God of uncut stones, and you shall offer on it burnt offerings to the Lord your God, and you shall sacrifice peace offerings and eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God. You shall write on the stones all the words of this law very distinctly. Now, as I said, there, there are a few of a uh, few of these verses, a few of these commandments that I, I just can't help but make a comment on them as we go through them. And here's one. If you look at verse six, you shall build the altar of the Lord your God of uncut stones. That may seem very trivial. That may seem like such a small detail. Um, when when Jennifer and I visited Israel and we were going around and we would find these very, very old altars one of the things that our teacher would uh, would ask us is, what do you notice about the altar? And by about the second or third time we, we noticed, he was asking us to observe whether or not the altar was built with cut stones or, or round stones that were left um, uncut. And just seeing that was indicative of the people's obedience whether or not they would observe even a, a trivial um, law such as this. Let's pray. Lord, we, we read in this text, we read about these, these altars and these stones, these memorial stones that would stand the test of time and would stand as a testimony to the covenant where the faithfulness of God is is compared to the uh, unfaithfulness of man. And just as with this very seemingly obscure command, this small command uh, to 
on, on, on how you required your people to build altars, we see that, in fact, Israel struggled to obey the law. That this is one such example. And yet we have provided for us a substitute who was born under the law. He was born of a woman. He was, he was man just like us. He, he, was, uh, he had temptations just like us. And yet he was born under the law and he kept the law perfectly. He perfectly and completely satisfied your righteousness under all, each and all of these requirements that we have been reading in the Pentateuch. Requirements which we could not keep. He attained a standard that we could not. And so we thank you, Lord, for this provision of a better Moses, a better Joshua, who brings with him and offers us a better covenant, a covenant that we can never lose because it's, veracity hinges upon not our faithfulness but his faithfulness and he is utterly faithful amen all right turn now to ephesians chapter 4 ephesians chapter 4 As I said, the, the theme uh, of the first half of Ephesians chapter 4 really is Christ, the great gift giver. But for this message, for verse 8, we can call this the generous victor. So this, this could be Christ, the great gift giver, part 2, subtitle, the generous victor. Israel as we just touched upon a second ago, Israel was a nat- nation and a people upon who we see as we read through the Old Testament, as we read history, we see the fingerprints of God on them. Everything from Israel's inception, her birth, her being delivered out of Egypt and led to Canaan and being planted in, in Canaan, her enrichment, her prosperity, her blessings, her provisions, her good leaders when she had them. In fact, any and every good thing that has ever come from Israel and that can ever be found in her is due to God's wise and kind and benevolent involvement with her. And it is so good, it is so refreshing and encouraging to see the fingerprints of God on that people. Likewise, the church corporately, as well as each and every one of you as individuals have the fingerprint of God upon you. Last week we saw how we, we saw how the fingerprint of Jesus Christ is, is is resting and is is firmly imprinted upon each and every one of you as we considered the uniquely crafted gifts 
and opportunities and talents and skills and good works that, that have been prepared beforehand for you to walk in as an individual. And Paul does get to the corporate gifts that Christ has given to the church, but before he does that, he drives home this picture of a generous, gift-giving Christ by showing us that Christ, he, he reminds us that Christ has graced his people once before and gracing his own people with, with good gifts is just par the course for our Lord and God. And so we'll see in, in Ephesians 4, 8, we will see the Old Testament shadow, the Old Testament shadow, the, the Old Testament prefigurement or foreshadowing of the New Testament, that's the second point, of the New Testament substance. There's the Old Testament shadow or prefiguring. There's the New Testament substance or fulfilling, whichever, whichever words you want to use for that. And so let's read Ephesians 4, 8. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives, a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, as we as we look first at the Old Testament shadow, we, we know it's it's an Old Testament shadow because of the fact that if you're using your uh, NASB, you'll see that the translators have put verse eight in all caps. Justin, does your ESV have a like a note in the apparatus? Oh, you're using the NASB. Excellent. You've converted. Yeah, the, the, the NASB translators do a helpful thing when, when they are when they recognize that uh, a, lo- a line or a phrase or even an entire verse or passage is a citation or quotation of an Old Testament passage, they will uh, put it in all caps. That way you know that you are reading an Old Testament uh, passage. Now, why does Paul do this? Why does he cite an Old Testament passage? Well, he does so because as he is thinking about Christ giving gifts to his people, a a picture comes to his mind of another time that God has given gifts to his people. Verse 8 references that occasion. And it's a citation of Psalm 68 18. And in fact, there are a number of parallels between what's going on in that psalm, Psalm 68, and what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 4. And so he, he sees this, this connection, this bridge just forms in his mind, and he cites the psalm not only to illustrate the fact that Christ um, has done so before, and in fact, done so in a way that every Israelite would have been uh, intimately familiar with. Uh, this, is, this was integral to their history, to their, their being uh, a people and a nation. Not only does Paul cite this to illustrate that, that Christ has done this before, but that he has the right and the grounds to give good gifts to his people. Psalm 68 is describing the triumphant exaltation of Israel's God, of Yahweh, who has entered the fray on on Israel's behalf and who has powerfully defeated her oppressor with, with unwavering 
uncontested might. Now, someone might say, there were many times that God defeated Israel's enemies. How are we to know which one Psalm 68 is talking to you? talking about and so i would i would say that's that's a really good question let's read psalm 68 and we'll we'll read verses 118 1 to 18 and i want you to tell me on which occasion the psalm is talking about so turn to psalm 68 there's no one in here to turn pages so, well, you, you were already there, so I can't, I, I'm, I'm just assuming by now I've given you enough time. Psalm 68, verse 1. Let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. And let those who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish before God. But let the righteous be glad. Let them exult before God. Yes, let them rejoice with gladness. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song for him who rides through the deserts, whose name is the Lord, and exult before him. A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O oh God, when you went forth before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah, the earth quaked. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself quaked at the presence of God, the God of Israel. You shed abroad a plentiful rain, O God. You confirmed your inheritance when it was parched. Your creatures settled in it. You provided in your goodness for the poor, O God. The Lord gives the command. The woman who proclaims the good tidings are a great host. King of armies flee. They flee, and she who remains at home will divide the spoil. When you lie down among the sheepfolds, you are like the wings of a dove covered with silver and its pinions with glistening gold. When the Almighty scattered the kings there, it was snowing in Zaman. A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with envy, O mountains with many peaks? As the mountain which God has desired for his abode, surely the Lord will dwell there forever. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them at Sinai in holiness. You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious, also that the Lord may dwell there. Now, we saw verse 1 says that his enemies scatter. And verse 2 clearly shows us that, that his enemies being scattered, they pose no threat to him. They, they can't counter his, his moves. They can't repel his advances. They can't stand his onslaught any more than smoke can anchor itself in a vain hope to withstand and defy even a gentle breeze. They can't stand against him any more than a pillar of wax can endure the heat of the flame. 
When Israel's God goes to war, his enemies fall and they fall hard. Verse 3 shows us that God is, is exalted. He is, he is highly honored. He is praised. He is glorified. His, as his enemies are vanquished and his people rejoice and they praise their God who has advocated for them, who has defended them. And Justin here is saying, Aaron, this really doesn't narrow it down. On which occasion is Psalm 68 talking about? Verse, look down at verse 7. O God, when you went forth before your people, here it is, when you marched through the wilderness. Now, God defended Israel a number of times. God delivered Israel a number of times. He defeated their foes a number of times. He marched through the wilderness only one time. This was in the Exodus. Look at the end of verse 8. Sinai quaked before the presence of God. Verse 17, the chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them at Sinai in holiness. God, after decimating the the most powerful nation in the world and besting and and, uh, overpowering all the pagan gods of the Egyptians one by one, uh, each one of them represented or, or specifically countered in each of the plagues. God led his people to Sinai in a, mon- in a, in a moment of triumph. He ascends. He ascends to Mount Sinai to meet with Moses and his people. And we see in verse 18, You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious. Now, there's a a great diversity uh, and difference of opinion among commentators as to what exactly that means. Uh, Some say it refers to when um, in in 1 Samuel chapter 6, when the ark, um, having been captured by the Philistines, was was returned and the Philistines sent a tribute. It's a very interesting passage because God uh, sent mice and tumors among the people and they send as tribute golden mice and golden tumors. Uh, But I would say that as David obviously began with the Exodus, I would say he stays with the Exodus, and we, and we could rightly see God receiving gifts from rebellious men. We can rightly see that as being seen when He, after after putting literally putting the fear of God in the Egyptians, He directed Moses in Exodus eleven two. He actually told them way back in chapter Exodus three twenty two, uh, but He specifically commands him again in Exodus eleven two to. uh, instruct the people to ask their neighbors for for articles and for things made of silver and gold. And we see in Exodus 12, 36, they actually do that. They they obey. And uh, 12, 36 concludes with, thus they plundered the Egyptians. 
And yes, that that silver and gold was put into Israel's hands, but much of that silver and gold went into crafting the tabernacle and the priestly utensils and was given to God by the people in worship. You can see that in Exodus 25, verse 2. So yes, God did receive gifts from men, even from the rebellious. Now what... What God did in, in plundering the Egyptians, uh, which Psalm 6818 uh, uh, phrases as receiving gifts from men. This was a common military practice in the ancient world. Really, uh, it was a worldwide practice until very recently. Um, taking booty, taking the spoils of war from one's defeated enemies uh, has, had been a very long time military custom and the the reason why it's not so widespread right now is in an age of of uh, video cameras and recording and uh, internet and uh, uh, satellites it's very bad pc it's very it's not very politically correct and it's very bad for one's public image if if you're seen uh, not only uh, engaging and killing other people in warfare but then taking their stuff but in areas where, where no one's looking, where no one's watching you, I assure you, this is still going on, and it still happens. But for a long time, this was a given. This was, this was how the world turned and, and how things went. To the victor goes the spoils. And along with the spoils, as the victor returned home, he would lead, he would lead a procession of prisoners behind him. And it was from these conquered and subjected subjugated people that he would receive tribute and for sure some some uh, uh, much of the spoils would go into the royal treasury and some would go into his pocket but sometimes if the victor was feeling generous and i would say if he was smart if he had good sense and he if he knew the importance of maintaining the the good morale and the loyalty of his troops he would take among that from among that spoil from among that booty that he had earned by right of victory and he would share them with those under his leadership he would he would give what he had acquired from the hands of his enemies and he would give them give some of it and distribute as gifts to his troops he would reward those who had stood by him and had helped him achieve victory now that that is the old testament picture of what god did in the exodus and the narrative of exodus uh, corroborates that god defeated his enemies he defeated pharaoh he defeated the egyptian gods he received gifts or or tributes from the egyptian people and just to complete the picture of psalm 68 18 he led forth his people who had been captives they 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 had been captives of egypt now they are his captives in in a good and benevolent sense and he led them forth to mount sinai where he ascends where he ascends he ascended he ascends the mountain with triumphant thunder and lightning and quakes uh, I, I was inclined to say it wasn't too long ago, but I think it's been more than two years since we read Exodus. But you can see that uh, either in Exodus 20 or just leading up to that. It is this God. It, it is God as this 
triumphant victor who has won the battle and who has thoroughly trounced those who who opposed him. This is a God who does whatever he wishes. This is a God who does whatever he pleases to do. This is a God who has the, the, the adulation and the praise of his people because they see that he has pleased himself to save them and not only to save them, but to give them good things and good gifts. That's the picture Psalm 68 wants you to have. And that's the picture behind Paul's thoughts as he cites specifically Psalm 68 verse 18 in Ephesians 4, 8. That's the Old Testament shadow. That is the Old Testament prefiguring of what Christ is doing or, or has done in the New Testament with the church. So now we look at the New Testament substance or fulfillment. Taking that picture of a, of a triumphant victor who has taken spoils from his adversaries and is now... He is now in a position to distribute gifts to his men. Paul says that Jesus Christ has done the exact same thing. What God did in the Exodus in besting Pharaoh and plundering Egypt's wealth and making Israel wealthy and prosperous overnight and putting great wealth in their hands, and putting great wealth and prosperity in the hands of a nation of slaves, and in ascending in triumph with his people behind him, gloriously happening, happening, Paul is saying history has repeated. History has repeated, and the Lord Jesus Christ has done the same thing, only this time he has done so with on a far greater scale, a far greater magnitude. To put it plainly, Jesus as the triumphant victor far exceeds any and, and, and every human military conquest that has ever or will ever happen in terms of, of scope and wealth and significance and, and history-making world impact christ has far surpassingly exceeded in giving good gifts and ascending triumphantly and giving good gifts to the church he has surpassed god's ascension in triumph and giving good things to israel now, what do I mean by this? In Psalm 68, and, and you, you put these two side by side, and you'll see that they're, they're similar, but what Christ has done towards the church, the substance, it is so much richer. It is so much bigger. And you see when you put these side by side. In Psalm 68, God conquered Pharaoh and Egypt and all of Egypt's demons, which Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.20 tells us that whenever, whenever pagans sacrifice to to their gods they're actually sacrificing to and they're actually worshiping demons and so i believe that there were demons uh behind the scenes in in egypt in the exodus not only has, did uh, on one hand god conquered pharaoh and egypt and all of egypt's demons 
But on the other hand, on the other side of, the, of, of that uh, equation, who and what did Jesus conquer? Who and what did Jesus conquer? Now remember, what, what has Scripture, what has Paul said, even, even in this very book, what has Paul already said about our dreadful situation before Christ's graceful, uh, gracious, benevolent intervention on our behalf? Where were we? What was our lot? What was our condition? Ephesians 2, 1 and following gives us a good start. We were, as one man says, dead, dominated, and doomed. Dead, dominated, and doomed. We were dead in sin. We were dominated captives to the world system, which itself is dominated and captive to the devil. That's a double domination. And we were doomed, utterly doomed to suffer divine wrath. This is all because of sin. We were completely and hopelessly subject to hostile authorities that were very much stronger and hopelessly stronger than us. We were subject to sin, to death, and the devil. And our subjugation couldn't be resolved by any military exploits no no commandos on any covert operations were coming for us no think tanks were going to we're going to th- uh, think their way think us out no council no no negotiator was coming for us there was no negotiating there is no appeasing these enemies they didn't want wealth they didn't want possessions and they would have seen us eternally lost and they would have been all the happier for it Left to ourselves. Our our plight was this. Left to ourselves, nothing could be done to save us. No one was coming to save us. And you certainly couldn't save yourself. You couldn't, I couldn't, we couldn't undo Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And the things that Paul said were true of us. We couldn't undo those things any more than a corpse in a cemetery can get up and shake the dust off its bones and then go on living. Sin, death, and the devil were our unassailable foes. And beloved, it is these things that Christ conquered. It is these, it is these things, sin, death, and the devil that Christ conquered he conquered sin he he bore our sin he expiated it he satisfied its demands judicially speaking the penalty for sin was paid for its sentence was satisfied he conquered it and because it was satisfied there's no longer any penalty of sin which is death there's no longer any penalty of sin left for you or for me and not only did he did he take away the judicial right that death held over us, Christ demonstrated his victory over death by taking his life back up again after he 
himself was subjected to death. You show me a man who can raise himself back to life, and I'll show you someone who has conquered death. And then there's the devil. Christ, having redeemed us out of slavery to sin, has conquered the devil. The devil no longer holds us captive. You don't have to listen to the devil. You don't have to to obey the de- the devil as you once did. He is no longer the prevailing and the strongest power and voice in your life. You are no longer blinded by him as Paul says he does to the unbelieving world in 2 Corinthians 4:4. 4, 4. You are no longer citizens in his kingdom, the domain of darkness, says Colossians 1.13. You are no longer accused by him. You know that Satan means accuser? And we see in the beginning of Job that Satan is, is wanting to accuse jo, uh, of Job's faults, of his sins to God. Uh, we also see in Zechariah 3.1 that Satan is a, is a, uh, he's an accuser. He is a prosecuting attorney against Joshua the high priest. He's the post-exilic high priest. And we see Satan, just as he did with Job, he is standing there ready and oh so willing to accuse, to slander, to point out Joshua's sin before God. But in Christ, you and I are no longer accused by Satan because Christ has conquered him. First John 5.18 also says that the one born of God no longer sins as, as a practice. The one who was born, because the one who was born of God, that is Christ, keeps him keeps him safe, protects him. And the evil one no longer touches him or cannot touch him. Christ has conquered the devil for you. He has, take, he has also taken away the sting of death, which Hebrews two fourteen and 15 tells us is Satan's most powerful weapon, the fear of death. He has been conquered. His, his strongest weapon has been rendered inert. Plainly put, the foes that Christ defeated at Calvary were greater and far surpassed the adversaries that God faced in the Exodus. Also, his ascension was greater than that of of the ascension in the Exodus. In Psalm 68, where did God ascend? Where? Where where specifically, geographically? Mount, Mount Sinai. In Psalm 68, God ascended Mount Sinai. That's not even the tallest mountain in the world. Jesus not only ascended from the grave to the living, which I would argue is a pretty impressive feat, 
But then he ascended even further from earth to heaven where he currently sits at the right hand of the father's throne. My friends, you here and you out in digital land, that ascension transcends any hike up any earthly mountain by strides and spades. Ephesians 1, 19, Paul talks of this, and we looked at this some months ago, that uh, Paul says that the power of God, which w- w- was brought to bear, the power of God that raised Christ from the dead, also did this. It also likewise seated him at his right hand in heaven. Now, how high is that? Ephesians 1, 21 far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Verse 22, all things have been put in subjection under Christ's feet. Every foe, every adversary, every power, every dominion, every name that is to be named is utterly and completely subject to the authority of Christ. There is no possible rival who can rise up and take him off his throne. There is no threats to remove him, uh, to remove his crown and depose him. He is on his throne and he is there to stay. And everything, absolutely everything is subject to him as I think it was R.C. Sproul who said that there is no maverick molecule in the universe. And I, I don't know what I don't know what angels are made of. I don't know if there's a, such a thing as an angelic molecule or an angelic atom. But even those, if those are such a thing, even those are under the rule and the might and the dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no maverick molecule in the universe. And that, Christ being exalted that high, where no one will ever remove him, I would say that is quite the triumphant victor. Furthermore, the gifts that he gave in the latter, as opposed to the Exodus, the gifts that he gave post-Calvary are greater than he gave in the Exodus. God gave Israel articles of gold and silver, earthly goods, which are, as 1 Peter one eighteen tells us, perishable. You know, and what does that mean? Ashton, what does it mean that, that your earthly goods are perishable? It means that, that there is a finite usefulness to them. Uh, there, there, there is a limitation to, to how, the good that they bring you, that, that their goodness and their use will eventually come to an end. All earthly things will perish are subject to being lost or subject to being stolen or subject to being corrupted or decay, decaying or fading or losing their quality. Everything, absolutely everything. 
God gave Israel these perishable goods, silver and gold, useful in their own right, but limited. In Canaan, they were given a land that they could lose, which they did. They were given freedoms, which they could lose, which they did. They were given cities, which they could lose, which they did. They were given covenant blessings, which they could lose, and they did. Deuteronomy 28, the latter, the, the, the first quarter of the chapter is talking about the blessings, and then the latter three-fourths of the entire chapter is on the curses that would happen if Israel failed to keep the covenant. The old covenant was good, but it had limitations. And every good thing that the Old Covenant promised could be lost, and they were. But in the New Covenant, we are given freedom that can never be lost. We are given a citizenship that will never be revoked, and it's a citizenship to a city that can never be shaken, Hebrews tells us. We have a heavenly inheritance. We have something good to look forward to, which 1 Peter 1.4 tells us, contrary to all the earthly things that we, that we have and enjoy uh, for a time being, 1 Peter 1.4 says that our heavenly inheritance is imperishable, it's undefiled, it will not fade away, and it's reserved, it's kept under guard in heaven where in no certain terms is not subject to being lost or stolen and so i could say quite frankly hell can come to earth that doesn't change your future nor your riches in christ jesus in his new covenant what else has christ given you there's there's something even greater than this Acts 2.32 and following. Peter is preaching to the crowds at Pentecost. And he says, This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Again, the resurrection wasn't something that happened in some back alley. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't a contrived story like the fish that keeps getting bigger every time Grandpa tells the story. There were a multitude of eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, there's the ascension. There's there's the ascension of Psalm sixty-eight eighteen uh, as it's applied in Ephesians four eight. And having received from the Father the the promise of the Holy Spirit, here it is. He has poured forth this, which you both see and hear. This is the, perhaps the greatest gift. Christ didn't keep the spirit for himself in the way that a that a jealous person or a, out of their out of their insecurity or or their jealousy uh and, and and being reluctant or undisposed to share the object of affection with someone else Christ didn't do that with the holy spirit he poured forth the spirit who 
by Jesus' own testimony in John fourteen sixteen, is a another helper. He is another comforter. In the same way that Jesus himself is a comforter and a helper to his disciples and to those whom he loves, the Spirit is, is likewise another helper, another, a, a, a comparable helper and comforter to his people. And Acts 2.32 says that he has poured forth that spirit to you and to me. And I would say that what, what you give to people says a lot about what you feel towards them. What you think about them and how you esteem them. Think If you think highly of, of, of another and you esteem them, and you're, you're going to give generously to them and you're going to give really good things to them but if you think lowly of them if you esteem little of them you will be stingy you will give begrudgingly or you will give poorly if you give at all and you'll be like scrooge who gave bob cratchit a lump of coal and saw nothing wrong with that christ gave us god doesn't that, that 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 should amaze you? Christ gave you God, not a not a force, not not an impersonal force, not an angel. He gave you God, the Holy Spirit, with whom I I can attest, because Scripture tells us this. Christ thinks very highly of the Holy Spirit. Christ cherishes the Holy Spirit. You realize Ananias and Sapphira were were executed because they lied to the Holy Spirit. Such such value God places upon his Holy Spirit. Christ has given you and me that same spirit. The one whom he has enjoyed incalculable bliss and glory with since eternity past. Now you add to all that, it, as if there can't be any more, but there is. You add to that the specific gift he has given to each one of you that we saw in verse 7, the unique way that you have been crafted and equipped to respond in your circumstances that he has given you and, and the, uh, the enablement and the empowerment and the endowment to execute the good works prepared beforehand for you and Christ Jesus to do. You remember... That God has not made you with a cookie cutter. He has not made you like an ice cube where you are identical to the 17 other ice cubes that all came out of the same tray. No, he has made you like a snowflake. There are, a hun- there are hundreds and thousands of ways in which you differ intricately in detail from those whom you are placed side by side with. And that's not all he's given to you. That's, this, this isn't all the gifts he's given to the church. Being the, the kind and the wise and the great giver of gifts, Christ Jesus as the head, as the gracious head, has, has more generosity out of, with, out of which he gives even more good gifts to the church. And, and that, beloved, this, this is here going on. This is only a preview. The, the, the message is done for today. 4-8 is done. 
But this is a bonus. This is a preview. Look at verse 11. Verse 11. We see that he has gifted gifted men to the church. He has gifted gifted men to the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. To preach and proclaim and proffer the truth that God upon the the truth of God upon which the church is established and by which the church is built up the truth of God by which the truth the the, the church is nourished and edified now why why did he give these men look at verse 2 verse 12 to equip the saints for service service to what here's an, there's another there's another explanation to the building up of the body the apostles are are god's gift to the church evangelists are god's gift to the church pastors and teachers are god's gift to the church and every single saint who has been equipped and who is now in christ adequate for service, for the building up, for the maturing and the edifying and the strengthening and the nourishing of the body. Each one of you is a gift. So great is the generous is the generosity of Christ, the great gift giver. Let's let's close in prayer. Lord, how kind and how good your fingerprints are. My heart weeps for the, for the skeptic and for the unbeliever who cannot shake his, his faulty perception that the church is just an organization of men. Clearly, the transcendent God who has who has been building his church ever since Matthew 16:18 clearly that transcendent god that good god that kind god is there behind the scenes where the eye of faith can see him and see every fingerprint of of his of yours upon every person both here in this church and throughout history Lord, thank you for the wise and kind and good and gracious way that you are building your church. Thank you for the gifts that you've given us as individuals. Thank you for those that you have placed. Thank you for the apostles who you set forth as a foundation for the church. Thank you for their boldness to preach. Thank you for their boldness and for their joy to be to count it worthy to suffer for your name. And in like manner, thank you for every single individual throughout history who has been appointed by you and put in place to build up and serve your church. Amen. So as we conclude our service this morning, we will sing, O Church, Arise. O church, arise. O church, arise.
and put your armor on hear the call of christ our captain for now the weak can say that they are strong in the strength that god has given with shield of faith and belt of truth we'll stand against the devil's lies an army bold whose battle cry is love reaching out to those in darkness our call to war to love the captive soul but to rage against the captor and with the sword that makes the wounded whole we will fight with faith and valor when faced with trials on every side we know the outcome is secure and christ will have the prize for which he died an inheritance of nations come see the cross where love and mercy meet as the son of god is stricken then see his foes lie crushed beneath his feet for the conqueror has risen and as the stone is rolled away and christ emerges from the grave this victory march continues till the day every high and heart shall see him so spirit come put strength in every stride give grace for every hurdle that we may run with faith to win the prize of a servant good and faithful as saints of old still line the way retelling triumphs of his grace we hear their calls and hunger for the day when with christ we stand in glory lord we long for that day and as john writes at the end of revelation come quickly lord jesus amen